Well, good evening, everyone. How are you tonight? It's good to see you guys. I would say show of hands, who's not afraid of the coronavirus, but you're here, so I guess you're not. That's good. Hey, I'm Pastor Jason Mills, and I am the campus pastor of Knob Hill Campus. And yeah, Knob Hill in the house. I'm so glad you guys are here tonight. I want to say hi also to the Santa Fe campus who's streaming this live right now as well, as well as our online community on YouTube. Thank you guys for tuning in. I uh, appreciate you being here in spirit. I, uh, I want to tell you guys a story about a man named Harland. Harland was a high school dropout, not because he was lazy, because he had to go and take care of his younger brothers growing up. And he kind of stumbled his way through life and had a bunch of different jobs. Uh, he was a farmhand. Uh, he was an army mule uh, herder, a motel operator, and eventually a service station attendant. By the age of 40, he decided he would start making food uh, for the people who would travel through his service station as a way of just caring for them, giving them a little bit better of a meal. And then people started coming just to get the food. He's like, oh, this is great. And the place he was in was so small, he actually had to have them eat in his bedroom because that's how small the place was. And eventually he was able to save enough money and open up a place across the street and things were looking great. And then they opened a highway a few miles away and all the traffic dried up. By the time he was 65, he has uh, lost all of his money. He's bankrupt. The restaurant is gone. And just to make ends meet, he decided to retire so he can get his Social Security. And the first thing he does with his very first Social Security check is spend all of it to open up another restaurant. And then he opens another one and another one and another one. Then less than 10 years, Colonel Harland Sanders had more than 600 Kentucky Fried Chicken stations in the United States and Canada. And at the age of 75, sold KFC for the equivalent of today's money of $16 million. You know, that's a great story, not only because, come on now, fried chicken, let's be honest. But it's a great story because this is a guy who failed over and over and over again. But yet he had a clear vision, he had confidence, he had faith that he would succeed and finally at the age of 65, finally succeeded. Tonight, we're going to be looking in Daniel chapter 3 and we're going to be looking at failure, fear, and faith all through the lens of Daniel 3 and what it looks like to go through a trial, what it looks like to go through what looks like failure but is actually success. So let me give you the story so far. I think everyone here is pretty familiar with the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel opens up and Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon has uh, captured everybody from Israel, taken them back up to Babylon. He has captured the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and has kind of like, okay, you guys have that kind of like it factor. Like you could go on like, you know, American Idol, you kind of probably make it. And so he brings them in, trains them up, uh, gives them education, teaches them the language, gives them brand new names, and they become kind of the, uh, the cream of the cream of the inner circle of satraps and scribes and counselors to the kingdom of Babylon. And in chapter one, they decide, hey, you know what? We're Jewish and we're going to keep kosher. 
they let them do it, they're successful, and they're elevated. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream, and he's so upset about it, he's like, someone better tell me what this dream means right now, or you're all dead. And they're like, great, tell us the dream. And he's like, no, you tell me the dream and what it means. And they're like, well, we're dead. And then finally, they find Daniel, and he's like, my God understands what's going on. I've got this. And tells them about that statue, right? That statue with the head of gold. And then the different elements, the different metals, the silver, the brass, bronze, the iron, the clay, and, and iron feet going down saying, hey, this is the succession of kingdoms that are going to come. And you, Nebuchadnezzar, are the gold head. You're the first. You're the greatest. You're the one reigning right now. But later, a giant comet's going to come, destroy it all, and God's going to bring his kingdom that will never fall. And he's elevated as well. And so it's been, as we get to chapter 3, it's been about 18 to 20 years since those events. And things have changed a bit. In fact, one thing that never seems to change when it comes to Nebuchadnezzar is he continually forgets the lessons he's learned when considering working with the Lord God Almighty of Israel. And he continually kind of forgets these lessons and has to learn them all over again like he does tonight. And so here we are again. And what he has done is he has started to kind of feel pretty good about himself. He has started to feel like, yeah, you know what? I am the gold head. You know, if he was Voltron, he would form the head, right? So he's like, I'm pretty cool. You know what? I don't think my nation, my nation, my reign's ever going to end. I'm the best. I'm going to create this giant statue that's all gold, not just the head. The whole thing's gold to represent that I am never going to fail. I'm never going to fall. I am the top dog. And so he makes this declaration. Look in verse 4 of Daniel 3. And he says, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery. If if you're reading the ESV, it says bagpipes right there. Really ESV? Really? Okay. I'll give you a dollar if you can prove the Scots were part of the Babylonian Empire. And in symphony with all their kinds of music, you fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And so he's made this like that dream. And it's 90 feet tall. It wouldn't even probably fit in here. Nine feet wide. It's probably got a core of wood or some other metal. And then it's coated in gold because you really couldn't get that much gold together to make a solid one of these. It's kind of crazy. But he sets it up. You guys hear the, you know, Babylonian Philharmonic play with the bagpipes. Everyone falls down and worships and everything's going to be okay. But there is a slight wrench in his plans. There are three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that do not bow down. And what's happening here is this, is all of the other kind of rulers and officials and counselors and scribes that are on par with these guys who are elevated Along with them, they're watching and they see that those guys don't bow the knee to the golden idol. And so they run and go tell Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we don't know if this was, they were just kind of like being the the gold idol police or if it was racially motivated, oh, those stinking Jews, or if it was politically motivated. We see later 
in chapter 5 of Daniel that they kind of pull this stuff with Daniel himself. Like, oh, king, no one should worship you for a whole, no one should worship anyone but you for a whole month. And then they wait around and make sure, see watch what Daniel's going to do. And he continues to pray to the Lord God of Israel and they get him in trouble to get rid of him because they don't like that these young upstarts are being elevated instead of them. It could be a similar thing going on, that political motivation going on in there. But it's not just that these guys are the only ones not bowing down. It can't be, because certainly Daniel wouldn't be bowing down in this case. And there's thousands of Jewish exiles in Babylon at this time, so I'm not sure why these guys get picked out. Maybe they're just the easiest targets. Maybe they're just the ones that got seen first, but they are targeted and brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And that's not surprising. As Christians we're told that we're supposed to be the light of the world, right? We're supposed to be a light that's shiny, not covered. We're supposed to be a city on a hill. And only so much time can pass before someone's going to notice stuff like that, right? If you're in the dark and you see the light, you're going to be drawn to it. If you see a city and you're out in the wilderness, you're going to go to it for safety. But there's always going to be some that hate the light, some that hate the walled city, Some that are going to look at that and say, like John said, the darkness comprehends it not. It's antithetical to darkness, light is. And so to put it in the words of the poet, haters going to hate. And so they bring before him all these things. And again, 1 Peter 4, 4, in regards to these things, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation or evilness, speaking evil of you. And so that's what they do. Hey, they're not like us. We're going to speak evil of them. And we jump into our story proper here at verse 13. But go, before I go any further, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us tonight. Lord, we few who are here, that Lord, we want to hear from you, from your word. Lord, we want your Holy Spirit to open our ears, to open our hearts, to hear and receive from you, Lord. Lord, we pray for those who might be sick, for those who are afraid, for those who are simply at home being careful, Lord. We ask that you would watch over our nation, over this world of yours, Lord, and we wait with expectation until you come again and make all the sad things untrue. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? So we got these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, originally Jewish boys. When they came into service of King Nebuchadnezzar, they were taught the language. They were taught uh, the books and the history, and they were given brand new names. And so Shadrach, his original name is Hananiah, which means God has favored. But Shadrach means royal or the great scribe. That makes sense given his job. Meshach is Mishael. His name means who is what God is kind of a linguistic tongue-tie, but what they're saying is, who is what God is? And the answer is no one and nothing, because God is he who is, who was and who will be. His name is the verb to be. That's crazy. He just is. He's the pre-existing, all-existing one, and his name asks the question, who is like him? No one. Meshach is less inspiring. It means guest of the king. Abednego, originally Azariah, 
means Jehovah has helped. His new name means servant of Nebo, Nebo being an Assyrian and Babylonian god of language, scribes, writing, uh, learning, intelligence, all those kinds of things. So it makes sense given his job. But I love that their three names in their original Hebrew almost gives us a preview of coming events. And if you know this story, and I think most of you do, you'll see what I mean. God has favored, he has favored these men and excelled them and brought them up inside of Babylon. Who is what God is? Well, we're about to see exactly who God is in a second. And Jehovah has helped because he's going to help. It's almost like God can see the future and knew what to name them. So he comes to them and says, I've heard this rumor that you don't worship my gods. Now, I'll give it to Nebuchadnezzar. He isn't going off of rumor. He isn't going off a of hearsay. He's actually investigating this, saying, listen, guys, I heard this about you. What's going on? Tell me what's going on here. Let's, let's come up with a plan and see what's, uh, what the story is. I realize I might be spreading rumors, but you know, tell me what's going on. And this is a problem that they don't worship. And it's more than just, you know, you don't have the same faith of me. This worship is a test of allegiance. This is not an act of blasphemy. This is an act of treason. Because to do this, to say, yes, I'm bowing my knee to the image that Nebuchadnezzar made, recognizing him as the total authority here in Babylon. Early Christians and Jews had the same trouble with Rome. There was emperor worship, right? They grabbed the pinch of incense and say, you know, uh, uh, Caesar is God, yada, yada, okay, move on. And the Jews wouldn't do it. And eventually the Romans were like, okay, fine, you guys get an exception, give you a hall pass. And then the Christians wouldn't do it either, and they were branded as seditionists. They were branded as people who wanted to uh, see the kingdom fall. And the problem is, is this, when you won't say that Caesar is king, and you say that Jesus is king, all it does is remind Caesar that he's not in charge, and any other king for that matter. And they don't like it when you do that, just a little pro tip. If Yahweh is Lord, then he's not. So verse 15, he gives them one more chance. He says, now if you're ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast down immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands. I'll give you one more chance, boys. He must have been feeling pretty generous or have some kind of favor towards these guys. He's seen them kind of climb the ranks, kind of, you know, nothing from Israel. And maybe he has a soft spot for them. And so he is giving them a fair hearing, giving them a fair second chance. And he's also delivering immediate consequences from a business standpoint, he's doing a pretty good job. He's like, listen, this is what I've heard. This is what I've seen. Here's the solution to the problem. We're going to play the music. You're going to bow. It's going to be great. And if you don't, here's the consequences. It's, it's, it's fairly straightforward. And he says, the consequences are you're going to have to go and be consumed by the thing, the thing that made the thing you won't worship. Because certainly this fiery furnace is where they smelted all the ore and melted it down to create this thing. If you will not be consumed by worship of the golden idol, then the golden idol's furnace will consume you. 
kind of poetic in a way. And then he says something that is just buck wild. He says, who is the God who will deliver you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar is placing himself on par or perhaps higher than every other God in all of creation. Even the ones he claims to worship. He's saying, go call a God, any God. I'll wait here and see if they can't save you from my hand because they can't. He's saying, my authority, my rule is absolute and no one can save you. For me, it's blasphemy is what it really is. That's what he thought of himself. If you didn't get the giant statue that probably looked like him as the first clue. But he has actually accurately set up the real contest here. It's not a, about paganism and Judaism. It's not about Babylon culture and, and Israeli culture. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar versus Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has, he has correctly framed the conflict it's a Nebuchadnezzar versus God. Let's see what God can do. This is the real contest. In verse 16, the boys give an answer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Really? It seems like you do. If this is the case, then... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will del deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, our king, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. I actually, for once, like the way that King James renders this. It says, we are not careful to answer thee. What they're saying is like, King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't have to be careful in the way we answer you. We don't have to be cautious or think of a clever way to answer you because the answer is quite simple. It's never going to happen. You can throw us in, but God will save us. And if he doesn't, that's fine too. We'll still be with him. We don't have to look at you anymore, but we will never <laughs> bow down to this golden idol. And there's no hint of excuse, no equivocation. We don't have to answer you in this matter. They could have compromised or made some like logistical, logical like leaps and clever words, but they don't do that. They could have rationalized and said, well, everyone else is doing it. We should probably just bow down. No one's going to notice. They could have said, well, you know, it is a requirement of our jobs. We do work at the palace. So we'll just take it. Let's do it, you know. They could have rationalized and said, well, we can bow the knee, but we'll never bow our hearts. The outside doesn't matter. It's just what the inside counts. Or they could have taken a, a macro view and said, well, you know, if we keep our lives and we keep our jobs, we can do more good for the Jewish exiles and the country at large. And so this is a lesser evil for the greater good. But they don't do that. He says, guys, you have a choice. And they go, let me stop you right there. We don't see that we do have a choice. There's nothing here to choose. I guess we're going in the fire. And I love this because their faith doesn't look for loopholes. A faith that looks for loopholes isn't faith at all. That's, that's being a lawyer. And that's a fine profession, but that's not faith. They say, hey, God will rescue us. They didn't doubt God's ability, but they neither did they presume to know God's will. He's able. We don't know if he will, but either way, we're, we're fine with that. 
will pay the cost. We just will not worship your gods. They didn't presume what God would do, but they were confident in who God was. Better than the rewards, the accolades, and the pressures of the world around them. You see, they didn't have a reciprocal faith. You know what I mean by that? A reciprocal faith? They don't have this faith that says, well, I've obeyed all of the law, and so now, of course, God will bless me. I live the way I'm supposed to, and of course, God's going to bless me. I've done all the right things, and therefore, in return, in exchange, I will get God's blessing. And that's how we think a lot about faith, because that's how our world works. That's the economy of our world. If I work hard at my job, I get paid. If I work hard in my garden in the spring, then I get to enjoy it all summer. There's rewards for work. But that's not how they viewed it. In fact, reciprocal faith is the accusation that Satan brought against Job, right? God and Satan are having a conversation in uh, the first chapter of Job, verse 9. And God's like, hey, uh, you seen Job? It's pretty cool, right? He's a righteous man. And Satan's like, does Job fear God for nothing? You've blessed his face off. He's got land and houses and kids and flocks and his wife's okay. And he's got, it's in the text, I promise. Um, Of course he does. To quote Jesse Lesko from a few weeks ago, he's a spiritual gold digger. You cut off his allowance and he will curse you and die. That's the accusation, but they don't have that kind of faith. They say we will obey God no matter what the consequences. Begs the question, what about us? Do we fall into that trap? When hardship comes to us, when trials come, and we're walking through a valley, so to speak, do we say, God, why is this happening to me? I did everything right. Where are your blessings? Verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I bet it did. He spoke and commanded they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated, and he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, and their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The expression on his face changed. I'll bet it did. He had some kind of favor with them, some soft spot in his heart. And then to hear this response, well, any rage and fury he was holding down that was simmering just beneath the surface came to a boil all of a sudden. And he says, hey, go to the furnace, crank it up seven times hotter. Do we have a dial on the side that goes to 11? Use it. So the way that these things are constructed is a large structure that had an open top where they could put in fuel and they could put in ore to be smelted or other uh, precious metals that could be refined there. And then at the bottom, there'd be a door to open to retrieve those metals and take them out once they had been purified and melted down. And then there'd be little slots on the side that they could look in and see and watch the progress. And then bellows where they could kind of pump it and make it go hotter and hotter to keep it uh, at the right temperature. So that's kind of what they're using. 
And it must have been pretty big because these guys, as we're going to see in a minute, they're all going to fit and have a little you know, walk around the place and get to know their environment. What's interesting is that it's so hot as the, these big, strong, strapping lads are taking uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be thrown in. They get so close to do that job, that they die on the spot. That's hot. In fact, for us to feel a burning sensation, it has to be 111 degrees Fahrenheit. We get a first degree burn at 118, a second degree burn at 131, and our nerve receptors lose the ability to even communicate what they're feeling at 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And at 162, flesh is destroyed on contact. To give you perspective, people are cremated at 1400 to 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. So most people think that this furnace was around 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. You know what that feels like. You've been in your car in August, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. That's the common grace of God that you survive every August. And they toss them in. They're still wearing their clothes. They haven't had a chance to change, prepare anything. They bind their hands and they toss them right into the fire. Verse 23, and these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Here's a question. What if the story stopped right there? Would it still be a good story, a good story of, of, of heroic faith? It would change bedtime stories for my house. And then they were thrown in and they all died. Night, sweetie. Click. No. So I can feel my daughter over here going, that sounds awesome. Because okay. um, these guys, they get a head nod in Hebrews 11, which is the hall of faith, right? The hall of fame of those who are faithful, of people who have faith that we should emulate. In uh, Hebrews 11, in like 33 and 34, it talks about here's what, you know, how, uh, you know, uh, uh, David and Samuel and the other prophets persevered. And it says specifically those who quenched the violence of fire and came out. But it also goes on in Hebrews 11, talking about these people of faith that we should emulate and look at and, 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 and be inspired by. It talks about... And there are others, and the word they're used is meaning others of a different kind who were cut in half, and that's the end of that story. Who were burned up, and that's the end of that story. They still believe God, but yet they didn't get the miracle. They didn't get the rescue. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to do. We have that thought all the time. I've obeyed God. Why is this happening to me? Where's my rescue from the fire? Where's the earthquake to get me out of jail? Where are the results that I so desperately need in this endeavor? We begin to complain about our rights and what is and isn't fair. And here's where the story turns. Here's where things start to change. Verse 24. The Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, 
walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. There's a fourth man in the fire. Hashtag fourth man. All right. For those of you playing along at home. All right. No. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has had them thrown in. He doesn't even do a second look. He's just like, ha, I got them. Because cool guys don't look at explosions. I'm just to walk away. They're done for. But the Septuagint says the reason he goes back to look is because he heard singing. He's like, I'm sorry, what? He comes back and he looks. And it's not what he expected. He was stopped by the sound of the singing coming from the furnace. And he's like, listen, I may be the king of the whole world and not super smart, but I can count to three. There's four guys in there. And one of them, the son of God. There's three kind of really interesting things happening here. Because he says, I put in three guys and now there's four. I put them in bound and now they're loose. I put them in to die and now they're walking around. And what I find interesting, the only person who seems to be able to see the fourth man is Nebuchadnezzar. What if, use your holy imagination for a moment, what if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego couldn't see him? What would that be like? They get thrown in, they're all, you guys know any good songs? <laughs> There's another in the fire, right? And they're just kind of chilling, walking around. But I love that idea because sometimes we're going through a trial, we're going through the fire, and we think we're all alone, but there's a fourth man, and we don't see him. But it doesn't mean he's not there. Jesus is aware. Jesus is present in our trials. Even when we can't see it. Even when we don't know it. But he is there nonetheless. I see four men. And one looks like the son of God. Most scholars think that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus being Jesus before he was Jesus. Is that clear? No? Okay. So before he was a baby in the manger, Jesus would occasionally show up in the Old Testament just to keep things interesting. And this is one of them to make a point. I'm with you. When we are willing to be a failure in the eyes of people, but a success with God, People take notice, and God is glorified. There is a fourth man with us. Verse 26, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. He can't go and get them. They'll all die, right? So, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire, and the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power, and the hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. We have to hearken back to the original words as he set up the conflict of Nebuchadnezzar. What God will save you? Here he answers his own question. The most high God has saved you. What a perspective change. 
When we respond in the fire with praise, people's perspectives are challenged. We will all have fire. We will all have valleys. We will all have things that scare us, that challenge us, that put our faith to the test. How we respond can speak volumes to the people around us. I love the small miracles, by the way, in the Bible. There's a couple of them, and we miss them a lot because they're small. When Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, the language implies that not only did the storm stop immediately, but so did the water. That's not how the conservation of momentum works. It sloshes around for a while. I've been in a bathtub. I know how this works. It just goes, and they come out and they're not burned up. Their hair is fine. And they don't even smell like smoke. Have you ever been camping? There's not a place you can stand where that smoke won't get you. You're like, oh, it's in my face. I'll go over here. No, it's in my face over here. It's just like, it's out to get me and you smell like smoke for five days. These guys came out and they're like, what? They don't smell like smoke. That's huge. That's a small miracle inside the big miracle that just, it, it blows my nerdy little brain, Okay. The fire only burned one thing. It burned the ropes that bound them. The fires of life burn off the things that bind us. Now, I don't want to get too spiritual about it, but do you think these guys were more bold or less bold for their faith after this? They were unbound. And I'm sure only helped them in future instances because Nebuchadnezzar never learns his lesson. In a few short chapters, Daniel will be in the lion's den, knowing, well, Lord, you took care of them in the fire. How about with the fangs? This trial had no power over these men because they were thoroughly submitted to the power and the will of God. They lived by a promise that was yet to come. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own. I love that he's most astounded that they have frustrated the king's word. But even here, he's like, okay, I get it. You can worship whoever you want because that was amazing. That has changed my entire perspective. It doesn't bring him to faith. He doesn't say everyone should worship the Lord God. He doesn't say I will worship the Lord God. He says you guys can because clearly he has got something going on that I do not. I want to submit a concept to you that our view of success so often does not match up with God's measure of success. As a result, we fear all the wrong things. We look at success by what can we accomplish? How easy is my life? What are the results? How much do people love and praise and adore me? But that's not how God measures success. We begin to think that that pain, that failure, that rejection is not part of God's plan for us because that wouldn't be success. That would be a failure. But we're told all throughout the pages of Scripture that 
hey, because you follow me, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be beaten up in synagogues. You're going to be put on trial most of the time unfairly. Even when Paul was going from his third missionary journey to his fourth missionary journey, he wants to go back down to uh, Jerusalem. And he's like, God's called me to go to Jerusalem. I have to make it there in time. It's going to be great. And he would go to a town and they say, Paul, if you go, you're going to get arrested. And he's like, okay, cool. And he goes to the next town and they have this big dog and pony show and they take his belt off and wrap it around his wrist. And he who owns this belt will be likewise bound if he goes to Jerusalem. And he's like, yes. And you keep saying this like it should mean something. You keep saying this like this should deter me. God told me to go to Jerusalem, so I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Thanks for the heads up about prison, I guess. I'll pack a granola bar. I mean, maybe they have my old room waiting for me. He's just like, those things don't deter me. That's not how I measure my success. I follow the fourth man, and that's how I determine success. Sometimes I think as Christians, we need to take a page out of the world of improv comedy. Bear with me, I promise. Have you guys ever watched improv comedy, like whose line is it anyway, that kind of stuff? The, the kind of the secret rule zero of improv comedy is yes and, okay? So, you know, someone will set up a scene and they'll say, hey, I'm your mailman, I have a package. And if the other guy goes, no, you're my brother Daryl, you're like, and scene's over. That wasn't fun at all. But if they go, hey, I'm your mailman. I have a package. They're like, yes, and I've been expecting my new zebra. Did you bring it? Well, I was wondering why this package was so big, right? So that's how they do. For us, we need to get our perspective right and understand what God's measure of success for us is. And so when we hear that people aren't going to like you if you do that, yes, and. But if you do that, you might not get the best position at work, yes, and. That's not my measure of success. I look at failure very differently. For a Christian, failure is not a lack of results. It's not ridicule of people or going against what others think is normal or prudent or safe or profitable. When we do choose to follow God, we do what he asks us to do. And this is success so that we can say yes and. And Peter wrote to us even about this in 1 Peter 4.12. He's well acquainted with this fiery trial. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening. He's like, this is normal that you go against the grain. It's normal that you look like a failure compared to the world, but a success in the eyes of God. And because our perspective can get skewed, we start to fear. We have to understand that fear and faith are not opposites. They're not antithetical to one another. Now, fear and love are opposites because perfect, fear drives, uh, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Faith without fear is still faith, but it's muted, it's diminished. It's like when you look at a soldier or look at a first responder and you're like, wow, they rush into the fire. They rush into danger. They must be so brave. They must never get scared. And you talk to them they're like, oh, no, of course I'm scared. That would be crazy. Bravery isn't not being scared. Bravery is being scared and doing what you have to do anyway. And faith is the same kind of thing. 
if you don't have a bit of fear, then that faith is, is, is not quite as, as, as much. It's diminished somehow. But in the face of fear, our faith can flourish. We begin to fear things like the unknown, fearing the future, fearing a stock market that's going to crash. We fear running out of hand sanitizer and apparently toilet paper. What is with everybody? Gosh. But Jesus told us, hey, don't worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. Matthew 6, 25. I tell you not to worry about your life. What you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than important than food? Is the body not more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? We start to fear people. We start to desire the renowned or the accolades of man, the approval of people. But it told us in Acts 5.29, it's better to obey God than to obey men, to be afraid of people and their opinions of us. The real problematic one is a fear of pain. Fear of pain. Pain's problematic. Physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain. The mother who protects her child so much they never even skin their knee. The person who preemptively rejects those who love them. I'm going to hurt you before you can hurt me. The mental anguish of anxiety. We desire safety. We desire to be protected. To be insulated. But Noah wasn't safe. Daniel wasn't safe. Peter in jail wasn't safe. One of my favorite verses in all of Acts, because it's just so crazy, is Acts 5.40. It says, when they called for the apostles, this is the Sanhedrin, and beat them again, they commanded that they should not speak the name of Jesus and let them go. And so the apostles departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his namesake. You're like, that's cool. I don't think I'm there yet. <laughs> In all honesty, because that's so crazy. Like, I would never go, oh, I got beat up for Jesus. Mm. Swish through the net. Like, no, like, it's so wild, but we want to avoid pain. We want to protect ourselves. And I think Satan uses that against us. I think he uses it against us because, let me tell you a truth that, that maybe will set you free, is Satan cannot change your destination. If you've been bought by Christ's blood, what power on earth or under earth or above earth or seen or not seen can separate us from the love of God? Uh, nothing. He cannot change our destination as much as it pains him. But he can change our potential. I drive on Paseo del Norte every morning and every night. Pray for me. I live on the west side, so that means that all of you are trying to also go the same place I am, and I know my car can go easily 60, 70 miles an hour on Paseo, but most of the time it goes three miles an hour on Paseo because I am hemmed in by other cars. The potential of my engine cannot be realized because I am crowded and hemmed by other drivers, and many Christians are crowded and hemmed in by their fears. And they're not fulfilling their full potential and getting the chance to exercise their full amount of faith because Satan realized, I can trap you, I just can't keep you.
Then it comes to faith, though. This is the solution. This is the remedy to the problem. We already know that faith flourishes in the face of fear. But what kind of faith? Everyone has faith in something. A believer and an unbeliever aren't like, oh, they have faith and they don't. No, it's not that. Everyone has faith in something. People have faith in their job. They have faith in their spouse, their philosophy, their own strength. The difference is the object of that faith. Nebuchadnezzar had faith in a golden idol. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had faith in the God who is and always was and always will be. True faith isn't being, isn't frightened by threats. True faith isn't frightened by threats. It's not impressed by crowds or swayed by superstitions. True faith, Christian faith, obeys God and trusts him to work out in and through the consequences of our trials. Psalm 23 is probably one of the most known verses in all the world, maybe right after uh, John 3.16, right? And it's because it says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, your rod and your staff that comfort me. And we're like, yes, Lord, I'm going to go through a valley of a shadow of death. I'm, I'm going to go through problems. I'm going to go through trials. And you're with me to protect me and to lead me. This is great. But what happens when you never get out of that valley? What happens when that's where your journey ends? Well, there's this great other part of that that says he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, whether we walk with the fourth man through the valley or we walk with the fourth man to the table of our Lord, we're still with the fourth man, Jesus Christ. He will always be with us. The question is, will we always be with him? We will always get out of our trial, either on this earth or on the next. These guys were not concerned with just survival. They were concerned about trusting in the one they knew they could absolutely trust in. John 12, 24 says this, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life for this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let, me, uh, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. And then in Isaiah 43, which I have to believe was in the minds of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Verse 1 and 2, but now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he formed you, O Israel, fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name and you're mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Faith means obeying God regardless of the feelings within us, the situations around us, or the consequences that befall us. The real measure of success for the Christian is do you walk with that fourth man? Do you walk with Jesus Christ? That's the only thing that matters. I want to tell you one last story about a man you've probably never heard of. David Brainerd. And it's fine you've never heard of him. It's almost kind of the point. 
He had a hard life. He was actually an orphan by the age of 14. He never finished college. He was actually expelled from Yale University for criticizing a professor. He suffered from depression his entire life. He was rejected for ordination and ministry, missionary service by church after church after church. And he caught tuberculosis while in college, and he would have it for the rest of his life. And to add insult to injury, his best friends were John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards, who were vastly more famous, we know their names even today, with way bigger ministries, by all accounts of failure, a life no one would want. He eventually decided to go on his own. He had to follow what God was placing in his heart, and he started a small mission to a Native American tribe in the Northeast United States. His, of his biggest victory, he wrote this, I have now baptized in all 47 people, 23 adults, 24 children. Through rich grace, none, none of them have yet been left to disgrace their profession of Christianity by any scandalous or unbelieving behavior. And in one of the very last sermons he ever preached, he wrote this, after public worship was over, I went to my house, proposing to preach again after a short season, season of intermission. But soon they came one after another, with tears in their eyes to know what they should do to be saved. It was an amazing season of power among them, and it seemed as if God had bowed the heavens and come down, and that God was about to convert the whole world. He died soon after of tuberculosis at age 29. A man you'll never hear of. There'll never be a book about him. He'll be a footnote in someone else's biography. Yet, even after his death, the ministry flourished, and more and more came to Christ because he knew what success was. Not that he was a graduate of Yale or he was accepted by a mission board or given a pastorate or a pulpit. I've come to preach the gospel and this is what I've got to do. If you take nothing else out of this, if nothing else seeps into your brain, let it be these two things. Faith flourishes in the face of fear and he who walks with the fourth man is no failure. Romans 15, 4, for whatever things were written before for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have the worship team come on back out, uh, battle drums, and we've got about 10 minutes left in our service, and they're going to play a few songs. And what I want to do is simply this, is I'm going to have uh, our pastors come forward and be here in the front area here. If you're a part of the decision team, I'd ask you to come up as well. If you feel like you're stuck, if you feel like you're in a trial that you're never going to get out of, if you feel like you don't know how to detect, is God with me? Am I in this furnace by myself? If you just need prayer, prayer for healing, prayer for direction, we're here for you. For the next 10 minutes, come receive prayer. We won't cough on you, I promise. <laughs> Battle Drums is going to go ahead and start singing, and I'll come back up to close this with a word of prayer.
Child of weakness, watch and pray, finding me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. others are still praying Lord we thank you that there's a fourth man there's another man in our fires in our trials in our valleys and Lord not just any man Lord it's you it's always been you who is what you are no one nothing Lord watch us watch over us guide us protect us Above all, Lord, help us to follow you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this special service from Calvary Church. We'd love to know how this message impacted you. Email us at mystory@calvarynm.church. And just a reminder, you can support this ministry with a financial gift at calvarynm.church. Thank you for joining us for this teaching from Calvary Church.